Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You've tuned in to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Emma Townsend. Today we talk about the public consultation process which transpired last year, conducted by New South Wales National Parks, discussing how to move forward with managing the Brumby population in Kosciuszko National Park itself. We chat with prize-winning scientist Dr Arian Wallach, who poses the question of why... Why aren't we acknowledging the ecological benefits that a lot of our introduced species actually supply our ecology with? And also we speak with Colleen O'Brien, the president of the Victorian Brumby Association, about her serious concerns on how the consultation process was designed. Colleen O'Brien, president of the Victorian Brumby Association. My first thing is I will not use the F word. You know, I don't use the feral word, so I don't call them feral horses, which the government calls them. But they will not let us call them Brumbies. You go anywhere in the world and you refer to a Brumby, anyone in the world knows what a Brumby is, much as anyone does a Mustang. But we're not allowed to call them Brumbies because that's an emotive term. And, you know, and it's so frustrating. We cannot even give them their name. It's like, you know, when we put people in prison camps and give them numbers, you know, like we cannot even call them what they are. People, we all know we're talking about Brumbies. The best we ever get out of them is to get them to call them wild horses. And that's normally in any meeting or series of meetings I set up with government, that's normally my first item of agenda is what are we going to call them because we're not calling them feral horses. So which I think feral is also an emotive term. Colleen O'Brien, president of the Victorian Brumby Association, a Brumby advocacy group, highly interested and involved in the consultation process. We will hear more from Colleen later, but firstly we will chat with prize-winning scientist Dr Arian Wallach, project founder and research fellow at Charles Darwin University. I asked Arian what role the Brumby has in the Australian ecosystem. Well, in all honesty, I don't know, and I I don't think that anybody knows. We've been too busy trying to control them and kill them, and very little attention has been actually devoted to finding out what they are, how they are functioning in the modern Australian ecosystem. Can one make certain assumptions based on studies that have been done overseas? Possibly. I, I think there could be... I would say that this is virgin soil for research, and one could certainly start by looking at studies from overseas, but it's important to to mention that virtually all studies from overseas will also involve horses that are, quote-unquote, not native, 
apart from possibly some studies in Mongolia with the Przewalski horse, but some other questions could be looked at how they function relative perhaps to some of Australia's extinct megafauna, although we may not know enough about that. Certainly, I think we'll find out a lot of interesting things if we take off our blindfold and just start observing them without uh, some underlying assumption that they shouldn't be here in the first place. Are they replacing a species that used to be in the environment? I don't know, and mm. I, I think that most questions that, that we that we would ask, would the answer is going to be, I don't know. As I said, they haven't been studied in the way native species are studied. They're studied primarily for the, in order to eradicate them, or if their effects are monitored, whatever effects they may be are considered bad effects. So we would have to uh, look at this question. For one, we would have to investigate what we know about Australia's extinct megafauna. I mean, some of them have been extinct for thousands and thousands of years, and we may not know enough about them. But we do know that there were a variety of large, very large herbivores that no longer exist. So at least to some extent, we have brought back in the form of horses, camels, wild cattle, and others, wild donkeys, large herbivores. They wouldn't be exactly the same. Uh, each, each species has its own dietary requirements, different behaviors, different uh, preferences for habitat. But there are, for instance, trees in the desert that I'm familiar with that have fruit that are very clearly adapted to be consumed by large herbivores, passed through their digestive tract, and moved on. And these large herbivores, these native large herbivores, are missing. And if we actually went out and started investigating what these introduced large herbivores are doing, like horses, camels, donkeys, and so on, we may find that there are plants that are now doing better because these introduced species are here. But of course, we haven't looked. And sometimes we call some sort of observed effect damage or impact for no particularly good reason, in my view. I mean, every species has an effect, native or not, and these effects can diminish the, the success of another species in some circumstances and enhance the success of other species. I mean, that's how ecosystems work. But as long as we are geared towards thinking about species as either good or bad inherently, we won't, we won't have the space in our mind mm -hmm. to ask the, what I think are the really interesting questions, such as what is the ecological role of horses today? Who is benefiting from horses? The ones that are not benefiting from horses, how are they adapting? Are they adapting? to horses. What elements in the ecosystems are potentially limiting the densities of horses or limiting where the horses can roam? Dingoes, for example, we don't know much or any very, very little about the potential effects of dingoes as top predators on horses. So all of these remain very, very interesting and very important, but open questions. I assume that they are questions we should be asking that go through your mind, Arian, when you hear about the call for a cull on Brumbies. On a personal level, I find the call for culls of Brumbies and, and other species, including the ones that aren't as magnificently beautiful as Brumbies, like cane toads, um, mm -hmm. I find these calls for culls 
personally distressing and scientifically frustrating. There is no, I, I know of no examples where killing these species has helped anybody. So even if we were willing to brace ourselves and kill a horse for the betterment of some native butterfly, let's say, theoretically, then we could discuss this. But all in all, I know of no example where killing horses has made the world a better place. CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855 AM. Tune in and listen up. We are now speaking with Colleen O'Brien, the president of the Victorian Brumby Association. Welcome to the program, Colleen. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell us when the Victorian Brumby Association was actually formed and why? We formed in 2007 after several years of private Brumby rescue. We just felt that there was a great need for a larger scale approach to lobbying for our Brumbies as well as rescuing them. In what capacity do you facilitate or correspond with the Australian Brumby Alliance? We're actually a founding member of the Australian Brumby Alliance. So ourselves and uh, Brumby groups across Australia and one in New Zealand also got together feeling the need again for some more continuity and some, I guess, some advocacy at a higher level to try and tackle things nationally as well as locally. It's been 14 years since the disaster that happened in Guy Fawkes National Park. Could you give us a briefing on what actually happened there? What happened in Guy Fawkes is over about three days, around 600 Brumbies were aerially culled in Guy Fawkes National Park in 2000. And it was done fairly quietly with not really, with no public consultation, done by National Parks and Wildlife Service. And it wasn't until days later that locals gained access to the National Park and were riding and walking around and finding still live horses. You know, there was a mare found 13 days later with more than 10 bullet wounds in her and she was still alive. So that's when things got quite emotional. Thankfully, the ASPCA got involved and did pursue national parks and wildlife but uh, most unfortunately although 26 charges were originally bought only one was settled out of court gives national parks a chance to say only one horse died inhumanely which is really quite untrue when as you uh, mentioned before there were about 600 brumbies is that right that were brutally culled that's right and there were horses found halfway up ravines like you know they'd been run chased by helicopters down lined canyons I guess and ended up like halfway up cliffs you know like terrain they wouldn't have tackled on their own and they ended up up cliffs and you know there was mares that had foals after they were shot there were mares that had had actually managed to almost entirely have their foals after being shot before they had died there was foals that died because they lost their mothers in the chaos whether they were shot or whether they were separated from them so it was 
a horrific, horrific event. Horror is the word. And important to note, you mentioned there was no public consultation for that. Seemingly, if it wasn't for this one particular farmer who came across the some of the still live brumbies, uh, the public wouldn't have actually known about it and there wouldn't have been such a public outcry on this. So it would have gone pretty much under the radar if one farmer hadn't spoken out about it. Is that correct? Yeah, you're yep. so right. There was no oversight or official follow-up. The RSPCA did not get involved and hadn't been involved. So, yeah, without that one member of the public who did who stood up and did the right thing, no one would have ever known what happened to those horses. And, yeah, I guess, I guess that is the thing that we've taken from that is the, the need to, as a community group, to watch what's going on with our Brumbies and be aware at all times of what, what government plans are. That's the, the backdrop we flash forward to today. Whenever a Brumby population management issue comes about, it's highly contentious. Let's talk about the public consultation that's been drawn by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. Why have they initiated this public consultation What's actually happened is national parks have engaged a communications firm to handle that process for them. And they're doing that. We've been, as Brumby Rescue Groups and ourselves, the Victorian Brumby Association and also the Australian Brumby Alliance, have been meeting with national parks and wildlife since 2008 to to help them to be involved in their Brumby management program and to, I guess, be a voice for the Brumbies. And through that process, we've appreciated that Brumbies need to be managed in that national park, that we've expected them to be managed with the highest levels of humaneness and, I guess, a really ethical attitude. So they've started this community consultation process with a view of, you know, bringing in feedback from from the general community. I guess the issue is that the general community, to a greater extent, is unaware of a lot of the issues. And in a recent instance where we had a day where national parks got around I would say 50 or 70 members of the general public as well as some what they call key stakeholder groups, so both pro-Brumby and against Brumby. They sat us all down the room and they gave us information and asked us to make statements or give answers based on the information they gave us. And that was a bit frightening because they had total control over the information that was given to people. And some of that information was it ranged between being incorrect and, and really blatantly lying. They claim that the horse population is increasing exponentially almost and damaging the environment. Colleen, would you agree that they are the Brumbies are damaging the environment? At this point, Emma, would you hmm. believe there has been not one scientific study on that? Not one. This is opinion-based. You know, and, and National Parks and Wildlife have access to scientists who could do these studies. They have scientists and their employers. There is no, not one scientific peer-reviewed published document that states we have Brumby damage. And a part of that is quite probably linked to the fact that it's very, very hard to quantify Brumby damage when you talk about all of the creatures and also that live in the park as well as the park users. I've had National Parks show me a slide that purports to show a Brumby track through a creek and it's quite a deep Brumby track. But then I was shown that whole photo by somebody else, that exact same photo. What they'd shown me was half of a four-wheel drive track through a creek. And yes, in that instance, the horses had walked through that four-wheel drive track. So you could see the top mark on it was hoof prints. But when you actually saw the whole picture, that was four-wheel drive damage which is park user damage. We've also got other large species that live in the forest. We've got 
wild pigs and wild deer. And a lot of the damage around waterholes and bogs, I believe, is being wrongly given to the Brumbies. Pigs and you know, pigs are known for their rooting and wallowing behaviour. Deer also are known for that. Anyone who's ever had a horse or ridden a horse or seen a horse in a paddock with a boggy area knows full well that horses will avoid bogs. So I think a lot of the waterway damage that's being attributed to Brumbies is actually really falsely attributed to them. The Brumby does seem to be scapegoated here when you look at all those other influences on the ecology and the environment. Why do you think there is such a scapegoating? Why are they scapegoating the horse? I think because they're easy. They're there and when you go to Kosciuszko National Park, you're not going to see wild deer because they're so highly strong and timid. For the same reason, you're probably not going to see wild pigs, but you may well see wild horses because they're a fairly relaxed species and they don't gallop around as much of the footage you see on the television would indicate. You know, they're fairly peaceful animals and so you do see them. And that allows people to, you know, I guess maybe that's made them a focal point for people's anger. There is also a lot of, whilst we support the management of Brumbies in national parks because we don't want them to get to a point where they do affect the environment or we want to see healthy Brumbies in healthy environments. But there are people who see two Brumbies and will immediately say, oh, the waterway's been fouled, I can't drink the water, oh, the stench of horse dung and the thundering of Brumby hooves. And unfortunately, they do get a bit of media airtime and therefore a little bit of credibility when they make those fairly outlandish statements. Hey, y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. You are listening to Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Colleen O'Brien, President of the Victorian Brumby Association, in relation to the public consultation process which transpired last year, conducted by New South Wales National Parks, discussing the proposed control methods for the Brumby population in Kosciuszko National Park. One of the review methods is a coffee table conversation, they call it, or a kitchen table conversation. And we were given that um, information booklet when we were up at that public meeting at Queanbeyan. On page 14 of that, it talks about the methods that could be considered to manage wild horse populations. And such a wonderful method as fertility control, which is actually a method that enables wild horses to stay in the wild and to manage their reproduction in a humane way from a distance. And we've got a method like fertility control on that page, and it actually states that that requires horses to be trapped and mustered and handled, therefore has limited application. Now, for 30 years in America, fertility control has been used on free-roaming wild horses. 30 years. And yet we've got a document that national parks in New South Wales have chopped up, absolutely totally ignoring that. And, you know, they've, they've been managing populations from the east to the west coast up into quite big numbers, you know, populations where in, in quite a small area there was around 750 mustangs and they've been managing them successfully with this product. So it, it's really frustrating. And so that, unfortunately, is the information that the public was given on fertility control and then asked to answer questions on it as a management method. So if this... I was given that, I, I'd say, well, gosh, it obviously doesn't work. 
The actual fertility control is is manufactured here, is that right? And we export it? There is one brand that is manufactured here. Probably the main one that we've been following and that has been in use in the wild for 30 years is actually manufactured in America. But we're already importing it to Australia to use at several of our larger zoos where they use it to manage their both deer and zebra populations so that they can manage them in a humane way without affecting, I guess the key to it is that it doesn't affect their social behaviours. And that's why zoos and so forth are trying to use it because it's a, it's a great product that allows them to still interact with their herd and their family in the normal ways, you know, if they were wild. So it's obviously been well proven that it's a safe, a safe product. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it's got application. We've actually got a proposal before both the Victorian and the New South Wales government at the moment that, gosh, we've been showing around for more than two years and that where we're offering to manage to do a trial in the wild and we will staff it and we will manage it and we will have scientists reporting on that. But at the moment, you know, there's absolutely zero interest in it and they, they still go by the, oh, well, it's never been tried in Australia. So I guess whilst ever nobody tries it, they, they'll always be able to say that. So all that information has been left out of the public consultation process and also the kitchen table discussion. Yeah, that's right. And, and they've printed off thousands of these booklets, tens of thousands of these booklets, to go out to people's homes so that people can sort of team lead a discussion, fill in the survey and send it back. So for starters, with that, the information is wrong. But then if you actually go through the questions, the questions are skewed basically so that you can choose the Brumbies or the environment. And one of the things that we have said all along is that we we see on a regular basis and we can continue to have healthy Brumbies in a healthy ecosystem. You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, 855 AM. We are speaking with Colleen O'Brien, the president of the Victorian Brumby Association about the public consultation process that transpired last year conducted by National Parks New South Wales to discuss how to move forward with managing the Brumby populations. I was actually going up to New South Wales last year for a meeting with National Parks about the Brumbies. And on the way up there, we stopped for a toilet break and they were slashing in a national forest in a grass there is a national forest beside the highway. And I thought that was interesting and I went over and read the signs and there they were slashing the grass because the particular species, I think it was a sun moth, that nests in that area needs short grass to nest and therefore to survive. So we have national parks out there who are removing grazing animals and slashing national parks at the same time to allow other animals that are part of that ecosystem to survive. Now, had they left the wild horses there to graze that area, they may not have had to go in with vehicles and slashed it. So I guess what, you know, what we're seeing, and I used to, 10 years ago, if I saw Brumbies in the wild, I'd be taking photos of Brumbies. But now I walk around and I take photos of the creek systems that are surrounding those Brumbies and of the healthy grasslands and of the balanced population of, of other wild animals because that's what we see in so many places. We see really healthy ecosystems that the wild horses, you know, Australia's Brumbies are contributing to. 
It is pulling into question the whole management of the park, isn't it? Absolutely. And we still get comments from national parks where they'll say, oh, look, you know, we give, we give the Brumbies a better go than the wild pigs. But, <laughs> and they certainly do. I mean, it's pretty tough gig being a wild pig as you caught in a national park. But, yeah, it does come back to the whole management of the national park and the understanding of the ecosystems that we have today. We've, you know, we've been told a place like Bogong High Plains in Victoria that when that was discovered, the reason it was called Pretty Valley was because it was 70% wildflowers and 30% native grasses. Now, due to the fact it's been grazed extensively by cattle and also, of course, there's been brumbies running on it, they say the mix is now 70% grasses and 30% wildflowers. But I'd very much like to know if they use the same measurement system when they make that call today that they may they used 150 years ago when that area was first discovered, and I suspect they didn't. You know, it's very easy to look at wildflowers and think they take up more of an area than they do. So it's very hard to quantify changes, and it's also very hard to attribute them to one particular species in the park. But every time I'm at Bogong High Plains, I see a really healthy environment, and the horses that are trapped and removed from Bogong High Plains all come through our program. And they come off and they are healthy, healthy horses because they've been part of a really high-functioning ecosystem. How often does a mare reproduce? Physically, they're capable of doing it every year. What we find is two out of three years would be more normal. So they might have two foals every three years. Now, it's very hard. What we find at the moment is a lot of their forecastings of populations are based on the fact that a mare can have a foal every year. And even if they base it on the fact that a mare has two foals every three years, they'll assume that all foals survive. And studies overseas in similar environments have shown that your foal mortality, foal up to yearling age mortality rate is really, really high. So you can't assume your birth rate is going to be a population increase rate. But the other thing that we have is we've taken more than 350 Brumbies in now. And we we don't choose the Brumbies we take on their age or their sex or their colour. We take we get what we're given, basically. Um, now, in all that time, the oldest Brumbie we have ever seen was 13. So we know that our Brumbies have a very short lifespan. 13 will pretty much see them done. If a mare's had several foals in her lifetime, she's had to support those foals, she's low on nutrients, we don't see 15-year-old Brumbies and we sure as anything don't see 20-year-old Brumbies. So again, you can't use the normal lifespan of a horse when you're attempting to estimate future populations because it just won't work. So do they effectively self-regulate their own populations, do you think? Oh, that's a bit tricky. It's a hard one, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. The problem with horses is they've got a really interesting reproductive system and they, they can self-regulate. They only they can only fall pregnant when the days are longer, so they cannot fall pregnant in the middle of winter. But the other thing that will stop them from falling pregnant is that is being hungry. So basically, if they get to a point where they're in poor condition, they won't breed anymore. It's a veterinary fact because their ovaries are quite spectacular, and they can go from sort of the length and thickness of a man's pointer finger to about the size of a jelly bean when they shut down. And so it's, it's a physical process. So they, they literally can't get pregnant once they, once they start to starve or when the days are too short. So they, they literally cannot reproduce when they're starving. But for them to be starving, 
we don't want them to get to that stage. And that's why we support their management. We have events in the wild, like the bushfires in 2003, halved the population of Brumbies in the Kosciuszko National Park. So we have natural events like that, and we have extreme snow years where, again, that sort of you know population battering can take place. But what we need to do with an ongoing management program, we feel, is to... You know, what we need to do is not say, great, half of them have died in bushfire, let's not worry about it until the population is high again and then we can threaten the public with aerial culling. We need to manage them every year and we need to explore different management methods. There are some areas of the park that would lend themselves really well to fertility control. There are some areas of the Kosciuszko National Park, for example, we're in a really small, maybe 50-kilometre radius area. National parks can trap around 500 horses in three months. So passive trapping works. We know it's done humanely and we know it can be very effective in certain areas. So I guess what we say is that rather than saying we need to find a one-size-fits-all answer, we need to manage the national park as a, as a lot of different ecosystems because that's, that's what it is. You know, some have road access, some don't. Some lend themselves to trapping, some to fertility control. It just depends. We don't support allowing Brumbies to get to a point where they are no longer breeding because we feel at that point the Brumbies are going to be suffering, the environment will be suffering, and there's no need for that to be the case. It's never been the case in Australia that Brumbies have been at those numbers and we don't want to see that happen. As you say, it's a logistical thing as well, isn't it? The, it literally is logistics, getting cars up there, you know, when you passively trap, getting the equipment up there in some areas. So it is it can be a precarious situation, I guess, the type of management control um, implemented. Yeah, it, it absolutely can. And of course, from our perspective, the other really critical thing is there's only so many homes to go around. And so we're faced every year with this, passive trap program in Kosciuszko National Park which is a good program it's run by rangers who own Brumbies themselves who really care about the horses and do everything and regularly go over and above to save a horse that might be compromised or you know or to let out a mare because her foal isn't in the yards or to let out a foal who's been stuck in the yards without mama so they will these rangers are great people and they will do those things so they've got this great program and then they bring them up to a holding facility that was designed by those rangers specifically to keep Brumbies safe and to make management and moving them around that holding facility easy. But at the end of the day, there are not 600 homes out there. And so many of those really well-caught horses end up at the knackery. And some of them, many, all of them would be usable or you know, would be homeable absolutely eminently homeable. There's just not enough people out there to train, I guess, all of those wild horses because training wild horses is a specific skill set. So this is where we see the the use of fertility control. If we could only trap one-third of that number and prevent the other two-thirds from being born, then, you know, we're starting to make a difference and we're not bringing horses out simply... You know, right now, the horses that go to the knackery, they go 1,200 kilometres down to Peterborough where they're slaughtered for human consumption in Europe. That's a horrific trip for a domestic horse that's used to people, that's used to trucks and travelling. But for a Brumby, I mean, even as someone who handles Brumbies on a daily basis, I can't quite get my head around what those horses go through on that trip. It must be horrific. 
So we need to find a way to stop those horses from having to make that trip. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are chatting with Colleen O'Brien, President of the Victorian Brumby Association, about the Brumby population in Kosciuszko National Park. You know, the Brumbies are actually filling a gap. 150 years ago, if you were in the bush, there were so many small wallabies and patamelons and tiny wee little grazing animals. Now, they lived... In, in, a, in a balanced system with apex predators, but when feral dogs and feral cats and pigs got, got access to these national park areas, we don't have a lot of those smaller species of grazing animals. And so we have a higher grass burden and people go in there to splash grass for moths to nest. So the Brumbies are actually filling a gap that has appeared through mismanagement of parks already. In Victoria, we have the Bogong High Plains, which in the latest draft report on the Alpine National Park, Parks Victoria is stating that environment is healthy and improving. Now, it's healthy and improving with 100 brumbies in it, but their plan is to remove those 100 brumbies. But why? If it's healthy and improving, why would you mess with that? There are other areas of the park, surely, that they could be targeting rather than the decision has been with the Bogong High Plains Brumbies to take every single one of them out. And the reason for that is because they're in such a geographically isolated area, it is possible to take every one of those 100 Brumbies out. And so that's what they're trying to do. So we're tampering with something that works. We've got broken bits of park where there are issues with waterways and so forth, but we've got this wonderful environment at Bogong High Plains that works, that is healthy and improving and we're sitting in there to remove a hundred large grazing animals. What's going to happen then? Well, we'll have to get more slashers out. <laughs> you know, I'd rather see a brumby than a slasher in a national park. Can you just go over the the water issue a bit more, Colleen? You know, I grew up thinking I was an, I was a greenie because I love I love nature, and I you know I spent you know as a family we've always spent time in national parks, but we've now got this new class of greenie that get angry at anyone who wants to be in a national park. So. Um, you know, whether you're a, a Brumby or a person, you know, it, it seems that nothing belongs. And unfortunately, you know, most of us at the end of the day, mo- and even most of these extreme greenies are, are white people and therefore also introduced species. And I think people, of course, more damaged national parks than any other species without any question. But they're going up there and they're... There's been a couple of stories in newspapers from people who've come home and said, oh, the water was so foul that, you know, I couldn't drink it, you know, and, and so forth. But I've owned horses, oh gosh, I've owned horses for a long time, for 30 years, and and I've worked full-time in the horse industry for most of that time. And one thing horses don't do is they don't defecate in water. We've had cows in that time as well, and cows certainly will. I don't know enough about pigs or deer. But horses don't defecate in water sources. It's just not what they do. So certainly if there is that sort of thing happening, it's not attributable to Brumbies. But we've got people who camp and walk and ride and spend time in the high country and have for years. And they're telling us, and we agree with them when we go up there, I'll go down, I'll drink from any of those mountain streams. Absolutely, happily, they're, they're the most beautiful pure water you could imagine anywhere. And I've drunk in areas where there's higher populations of Brumbies and where, there's, where, and where I haven't seen a Brumby, and I've not noticed a difference. So, you know, we've got areas 
such as Kawombat Flat in the Alpine National Park in Victoria, which there is a high population of Brumbies in that area, and there's never been any real attempts to manage them. They've been run, but Brumby Running, Parks Victoria released a document themselves, whilst using Brumby Running as a management tool, they've released a document that says it's inefficient and inhumane. What is Brumby Running, sorry? So these are people who are allowed to take dogs into national parks. So dogs are used to find the Brumbies and to keep them running. And then people on horseback chase them and they rope whoever falls to the back. And if you think about it, who's going to fall to the back? You've got your old and sick, you've got your heavily pregnant, you've got your babies. So your, your healthy fit horses get away. They rope them and they tie them to a tree and they go and rope more. And then at the end of the day, they put them on a trailer and they take them out of the park. And historically, the people who did Brumby running, they did it because they wanted a Brumby for their kids or they wanted a Brumby as a riding horse or they'd train a few a year and sell them. But unfortunately, with Parks Victoria's involvement in the way that Brumby running is done, now these people are being given targets. And if you want to be allowed to keep Brumby running, you've got to catch X amount this year and X amount that year. And so they're being pushed to get higher and higher quotas. And wherever they're getting pushed to get higher and higher quotas, your welfare issues can tend to go out the window. And that's the case. That's why they're allowed to use dogs now. Because it used to be, if you went looking for a Brumby for the weekend and you didn't find one, you still had a great weekend and you'll find one another weekend. But now they have to find them. So now Parks Victoria allow the Brumby runners to be the only people to be allowed to take dogs into our national parks. And they use dogs to chase them and find them. So we don't have an issue with the traditional practice of the locals going to get a Brumby to use for their family. We have a massive issue with commercial Brumby running where more Brumbies are caught than are needed and therefore most of them end up at the knackery and the practices become a bit questionable too. So that's been used in this area in Kawombat Flat. Now, it's not been working. It's not very efficient. There's not many numbers coming out and therefore there's a high population of Brumbies there. And about 20 years ago, Parks Victoria put up three or four horse exclusion plots over the creek at Kawombat Flat. Now, they're called feral horse exclusion zones, but I've seen them, and the fencing also excludes wombats, kangaroos, deer, pigs, etc. It excludes every animal. So inside these zones, you've got grass, the height of a fence, which is so long that frogs couldn't breed adequately and moths can't nest. And then outside these zones, because they've... Uh, being over a river, in effect, those zones concentrate where other animals can cross the river. So you've got actually a significant amount of damage to that river where livestock, you know, where kangaroos and horses and deer, etc., are crossing it because they're being concentrated. They're not allowed to cross it wherever they choose down it. There's all these exclusion zones that force them to cross at certain points. So that gives parks a chance. That's where they take politicians and the media. That's their... That's really their calendar girl for this is why Brumbies have to go. And they say, look at this terribly degraded waterway, look at all that long grass there. And people who don't know would assume the long grass is a good thing, but it's not. And so they're still using that even in the last 12 months. I know of, they've taken Brumby advocacy groups there to show them the Brumby situation. Now, I went, I don't know, 50 metres downstream from that impacted creek area and I was drinking the water from that creek, which was sweet and beautiful water. So I don't see 
but the horses are affecting the waterways there. It seems to be that we're dealing with each species in an isolated way and not seeing the fluidity of engagement and relationship at all. And that's just not doing anyone any favours. The only favour it's doing is keeping the, the horrible reality of the cheapest, inefficient way is a bullet. Well, that's right. And, and you know, even, um, even when they refer to it as the cheapest way, you know, I, I was at a, um, a meeting where a National Parks employee was saying that passive trapping is costing $1,075 a horse. Now, about two years before that, National Parks had removed 680 horses. I know for a fact that their budget for horse removal is not more than half a million. So I don't know where he got those figures from, but they're wrong because their, their budget for removing brumbies just isn't that high. You know, you'd be talking a quarter of that. So wherever that $1,000 came from, that's incorrect. And then in the same paragraph, he turned around and said, whereas we can go up and we could aerial cull 600 horses in a day and it'd cost us $40 a head. That's mind-blowing. But, and that sounds, to the extreme greenies, that sounds like a, a really viable solution. It's so cheap, it's so quick. But what are they going to do? Are they going to leave 600 bodies there in situ for bushwalkers to see, to degrade the waterways, which is something the extreme green groups are very worried about, and also as a massive temporary food source for wild dogs? And what do they suppose is going to happen? The dogs are going to feast. Dogs are super ovulated, so when times are good, they have huge litters of puppies. So they'll feast, they'll have huge litters of puppies. After a month or two, when the food source has gone, then they're going to externalise. Then they're going to tear through those national parks, they're going to kill everything they can, and then they're going to move on to private land. And the same thing that will happen with wild pigs, because wild pigs are carnivores. So, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we could knock them all off for $40 a head. But the logistics of that and the damage that would do to the environment, so then if you factor in killing them at that price and removing them, I'll bet it's not going to be $40 a head to actually be removing 600 carcasses from a national park. You know, it's, and this is our problem, I guess, is the, the information that national parks organisations are giving to the public. You know, to me, if I was Joe Public from, from you know, Williamstown and I heard the Brumbies are doing massive damage... The passive trapping is not effective and it's costing $1,000 a head. We could aerial cull them $40 a head. It's very easy to sway people when you give them information designed to sway them. And throwing their definition of humane or relative humaneness, then you are quite swayed. Absolutely. on the ground in Colorado with a, a group where they were using fertility control as a treatment on their, on their Mustang mares. And we sat there and over about four hours, the lady I was with started, I think she started 14 mares. So this lady is a volunteer. She does it three weekends a month and their local population, and it's a community group and they do this because they didn't want the government coming in and doing catastrophic management of their local Mustangs anymore. So this is the model we've tried to copy and sell to our Victorian and New South Wales government, but they don't really want to see it. So in that four hours, we sat there and the Mustang mob grazed around us within about 
well, 60 yards, you know, is, is her idea of a good ideal range. So quite close to it. And she would wait until the mares were, say, for example, near a prickly bush, and then she'd dart them in the rump. So she'd shoot them, the dart would go into the rump, and the mare would sort of swing her head around the, oh, the bush and then, and then put her head down and keep grazing. So it was so non-invasive. These horses didn't take fright at any point in time as we sat there darting horses <laughs> until a conservationist came up and abused us and then all the horses took fright and left. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a real shame. So this is a model that we're trying to get off the ground here in Australia where we have communities involved in managing their local wild horse populations and it's done in conjunction with a local sporting shooters association because they have skills in that area and with local citizen scientists who are trained to record the results. So as you're sitting there over your four hours darting a mob, you're also recording who's been born since the last year when you're up there darting that mob and so forth. And that gives us statistics at the end of three years that we can present and say, look, this works. So that's the model we're trying to get off the ground. And And that is a model that obviously the darting therefore negates any need to actually trap the horse. And give it, it in the stress and give it that stress, yeah. It does. One of the things as a wild horse trainer I feel sad about sometimes is sometimes when we do trap these early teen horses, which are as old as they'll get out of the wild. So, you know, some of these twelve and thirteen year old horses you think, gosh, you know, they only had another couple of years. It would have been nice if they could have just lived it in the wild instead of having this massive change as an adult. It'd be like, you know, going and picking up a 40-year-old person from one of the lost tribes and popping them into a, a developed society is such a big life change for them. And they do they cope with it beautifully, but you just think it would be easier if we could say, let's target, let's trap and remove young horses and leave the, wild, the older horses there, perhaps. Dart them so they're not con- contributing. They've probably already contributed to the gene pool. Dart them so that they're not contributing extra foals. And, and let them live out their days. At the forum that you went to, you spoke of earlier on in the interview, mm. do you think public sentiment will change at all? Have you got hope there? Because apparently at the end of that forum, 75% of participants put the humaneness of the uh, population management control as the last priority. Yeah, they did. Again... Loaded questions, Emma. You know, that question was really interesting because it said, what is most important to you? You know, so they asked us to rank horse welfare and humaneness of method, cost, safety of national park staff. Oh, gosh, there was something else. Um, now, to me, I ranked the horse welfare and humaneness as the most important because I feel that we can, we can be, you know, these are our actions that we can and should be judged on. I ranked safety of the staff as secondary because they can make their own decisions about when they're safe and when they're not safe, the staff, and say, I choose to be involved or I don't choose to be involved. So I don't think that's something that we should be asked to feel responsible for. Then I put the cost last because at the end of the day, again, it comes back to we can be judged and should be judged on our actions, not on our concerns about cost. You know, then you've got people that are going, gosh, I should put people safety higher than horse safety. So it, it was a question that left people, you know, there was no right answer to it. 
and I felt really comfortable with my answer. But I could see why people rated the human, the safety of the staff higher. And when I was discussing it with some of them afterwards, I said, oh, look, I rated it last because to me, the sentient, the, the adults, educated adults, they can make their own decisions and the horses don't have that choice. And people are thinking, saying, oh, gosh, that wasn't, you know, that question didn't allow us to get to that point. So, yeah, humaneness did copper battering. I guess the, the other thing that we have found throughout this process, the process I've been involved in in Victoria, where they've inv- invited key stakeholders, they've had us as pro-Brumby groups sitting around the table with the extreme anti-Brumby groups. And what that's allowed us to do is learn from each other a little bit and establish some level of commonality. It might only be small, but, you know, we've had that. Whereas with the New South Wales uh, way it's been run, is they've kept us separate. And they joke about, oh, we don't want bloodshed. But what they're avoiding is us finding any commonalities with other groups, with other groups that have different views. And I think that's an import, such an important part of the process. So they had the extreme green groups on one table and then they had the pro-Brumby groups on other tables. And it got to the point by the end of the day where the extreme green groups were deliberately, they were ticking answers on boxes and holding them up and sort of all having a bit of a giggle between themselves and, you know, showing us their answers and going, oh, you know, aren't we clever? And it was almost, gosh, it was like being in year nine. You know, it was almost at that point, you know, where you've got two little groups facing off. And it was really sad that I felt like they compromised their ethics on that day to get a rise out of other groups. But we had people from the public coming up to us all throughout the day saying, this stinks, this is loaded, we don't like these questions, we have to answer them. And that's where I'd be saying to them, you don't have to answer them. Don't answer it. If you think it's loaded, write your reasons for not answering it and move on. But I do feel there's hope, but I'm concerned about the information that is given out there to the public that that doesn't enable people to understand the situation and understand the benefits of having Brumbies in the wild. And question the questions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because, you know, it was amazing until I got to a point, there was two tables of pro-Brumby groups, and then I realised that people were answering questions they didn't want to answer, so I actually started, I, I said reasonably loud, I said, I can't answer this question, I won't answer this question, it's loaded, and then other people started putting pens down as well, and unfortunately, they put people in a situation where you feel you need to answer these questions to have your voice heard, but you're better off saying, no, no, I won't. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, encouraging people to ask questions and to say, you know, to say why and how and, and, and why on earth tamper with an environment that works. And many of the places across Kosciuszko and the Alpine National Park in Victoria, the environment works. Bobong High Plains is, a, is, you know, is a healthy environment. Davies Plains in New South Wales, you know, I could, I could list probably 30, you know, or more healthy environments off the top of my head. So if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The public consultation process is now closed, but you can still look at the comments, videos and questions online. What's the next stage of this? Is there another public consultation in July, Colleen? There will be. What we're waiting on, in Victoria, we're expecting a draft plan to be released in November 2014. So I assume that will be released at some point and the Victorian public will then have either 30 or 60 days to make comment on that and to give feedback on that plan. And the same thing now in New South Wales, that we're waiting on a plan to be released. 
the tough thing is by the time the plan's released, it's very hard to change bits and pieces in it. But, um, yeah, we're waiting on that plan in New South Wales also to be released and at that point the community will have the chance to, to feed back their thoughts on that for generally between 30 and 60 days we'll have it. So why is it day. is it really hard to change? It'll, so they still put it out to public consultation after the draft plan's released? Yeah, that's right. So it'll, it's just harder to change at the draft plan stage than it is earlier. But it's certainly, you know, if we get enough voices heard, you know, all things are possible. Think I'll leave you there in the middle of the forest. I've taken you this far. Don't want to get lost in Oscar's your hands. They're so hard to hold on to. I know it's not. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. That was a tune called Home Again by Melody Moon, which capped off our interview with Colleen O'Brien, President of the Victorian Brumbies Association. Do you want to get in contact with a socially progressive audience and diverse communities? Are you organising a forum, concert, festival, rally, call-out or film screening? and want to let people know. Unlike other community radio stations, 3CR doesn't have commercial advertising, but we do offer not-for-profit, community and government organisations a chance to connect with 3CR's diverse and lively audience. Go to www.3cr.org.au and find out about our very affordable community announcements or call 3CR on 9419 8377 and get your event on air. So for community service announcements, on Saturday the 28th of March will be a Melbourne Pig Save Rally. So that's the week before the Easter break at 12 noon to 2pm in Burke Street Mall, Melbourne. Melbourne Pig Save aims to inform the community about the plight of pigs in our food production system, including legal and routine painful mutilation without anaesthetic usually, and confinement. Pig Save want to show people that pigs, like all animals, are individuals with their own lives and personalities. That completes our program for today, so thank you very much for tuning in and supporting the program. I'd like to thank our interviewees, Colleen O'Brien from the Victorian Brumby Association and Dr Arian Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project. I'd like to thank the musician, Melody Moon, if you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Twitter or Facebook or via the website. So taking us out is another tune from Melody Moon called Bridges.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.